Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel, and today we'll be talking with Dana Mitra, author of the book, The Empowered Professor, Breaking the Unspoken Codes of Inequality in the Academia. How are you doing today? I am great. Thank you for having me. Great. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Sure. I'm a professor at Penn State in education policy, and my research looks at ways that young people can find a voice in decision-making processes. So um, through my research and my academic side of things, I developed a framework looking at developmentally what young people need to feel like they can make a difference in their in their worlds. And what I found as I be- eventually became a, a life coach as well Um, from first finding that it was helpful myself pre-tenure and as a young mom to have a way to have someone ask me important questions um, to try to discern how I could have greater purpose and agency in the work that I was doing and then found that that I was being called to be a mentor and a coach myself and it was time to get some training. So I realized then that, that these two parts of my life that I was being a professor and I was also consulting as a coach. There was so much synergy in terms of what I was seeing with the faculty that I work with, with the leaders that I work with, and the young people that I research around similar senses of what it takes to have a sense of well-being. And so that led me to write this book, The Empowered Professor, Breaking the Unspoken Codes of Equity in Academia. And what I found was there's kind of two pieces to finding success in a work Um, in a work situation. One is really investigating what are the unspoken codes, what are the expectations that nobody has written down that you really need to understand. So how can we be better uh, detectives of our environment, as well as how can workplace and organization be more explicit so that there isn't so much that inequity of depending who you are and what your background is, whether you might have access to information versus know how to how to ask and who to ask, that it's available to everyone. And on the other side, related to that studying of young people, I really found that just like just like with young people, with anyone in the workplace, there's the ABCs. And I don't say that to make it sound simple. And in fact it's life's work for all of us, but it helps us to remember. So the first is agency or having that sense of purpose in our work, that sense of calling instead of it feeling like the job. Belonging is the second part. How do we feel connection and trust with the people that we're, we're collaborating with and working with? And then competencies. What are the skill sets that we need to be successful, including time management, including productivity and accountability and making sure we're able to get our work done and, and in a way that makes us feel balanced and whole and not just harried all the time. So that's what my book ended up being about is these two components and how together they can help 
all of us to be more successful. And then I, and for this book in particular, I apply it to connect it to what it takes to be a successful academic and how the ABCs relate to the work we do around research, teaching, and service. Now, explain to the audience the coaching approach to faculty development and why this is important in our new educational climate. Yeah, you know, in the world of, uh, in the corporate world, coaching is, is almost second nature at this point. Most C-suite organizations have funding and, and, and encourage their leaders to have executive coaches and leadership coaches. Um, and there's kind of a whole, a whole strand of 20, 30-something entrepreneurs who just naturally expect to have a coach as a part of how they do business. And it's starting to emerge in academia, but it really needs, we need more of that in the sense that I think um, a, lot of, a lot of our focus, whether it be in more equitable hiring or just generally supporting faculty who need support and who come from backgrounds different than a traditional white male background are, 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 there's a lot of focus on hiring those folks, but not a focus on supporting them once they arrive at an institution. And each person struggles, each person's gaps in terms of the information they need in order to succeed in a particular climate are different. And what a coach does is really meets a person where they are and helps to identify what those, what those issues look like. So most of the clients that I work with in an academic setting have kind of gotten knocked to the ground or, or lost their mojo. Maybe they've had um, they've had a, a performance review that didn't go so well, or they're trying to get published and they're struggling with getting some things published, and they're starting to doubt whether this career is a good fit for them. And so um, I work with them to identify. Sometimes it's um, it's really just reconnecting to that sense of agency, that sense of purpose, figuring out what it is that they, they're able to do uniquely that other people may not be able to do as well and how to bring that forward. For some, it might be switching to another career that's more fulfilling. It also may be that competency piece around really helping um, to hone the, the message and writing um, the, or the time management skills in order to carve out space to get the work done. But usually it's something around that, that sense of, of connecting them to belonging in the, the middle of the B around believing that there's a space for, for oneself in an academic setting and trying to find those mentors and connectors to figure out what is, what is expected and how to, how to find partners in order to be successful. Now, you talked about the identity text. What does the research show about the identity text that underrepresented faculty carry? Yeah, so in on the one hand, there is a really f- terrific focus in academia or or increased interest, I should say, or a hope that committees and work is more representative. And then to make work representative or to be to be inclusive, we, we try to make those committees more inclusive and representative who's doing that work. And yet, because we don't have as many people from different backgrounds and experiences, the few folks that are there in the institution end up serving on all the committees. And like, and on the flip side as well, 
faculty member of color and women and, and LGBTQ faculty and so on um, are sought out by students who also feel underrepresented. So they tend to take on larger advising responsibilities as well than white male faculty, for example. And so they kind of um, have extra service on both sides in terms of committee work and also in terms of supporting students who, you know, who, who are also struggling. And, and then there's the same and sometimes even heightened expectations around research and teaching as well. So, so there's, there's this, while the universities may be intending to be um, encouraging by trying to get more voices in, and a broader and diverse spectrum onto committees and decision and to support students, in the end, that means that those faculty are working and spending far more hours on service work, which is not rewarded as much in academia as um, space and time to do the research that they may need to do or the teaching. And when you look at research, the research may be different. It may have a different focus than traditional white male teaching. And that in itself is effort to educate um, tenure committees and grant boards and publications of the importance of um, a broader range of scholarship and what worthiness looks like. So there's a kind of a tax on all levels. On the teaching side, traditionally underrepresented groups get less positive teaching reviews. Again, because they teach differently. They speak and have a different set of perspectives differently around what is important and what matters. And that's exactly what we would hope our students to learn. But when things feel different, a lot of times white and majority students are um, in a space of discomfort. And instead of embracing that and realizing that's really what learning is about, um, they, they give less ratings to the faculty who push them to broaden their perspectives. So there is a sense of tax all around. And um, we need to be able to recognize that and understand what that looks like and really try to think of how to lessen the load um, of these faculty as they move forward with their work. Now, you talked about the workload calculator. How does this mm-hmm. work? Yeah, a workload calculator is something that is not as common in the United States. But um, in Australia, for example, in as you go for any performance review as a faculty member, you put all of the things that you've done, all the all the committees you've served on, all of the classes that you've taught, all the things you've written, everything that you would keep a list of, of the work that you've done throughout the year into this um, spreadsheet. And each of those little pieces of work is given a value that turns into a numeric or an overall um, evaluation. Um, And that is something that faculty have to do every year. It's not like in the United States where once you hit a certain promotion level, you're not really evaluated very much anymore. Um, so, so in, in situations where there are these kind of workload calculators, um, there is a lot of pressure around um, publishing in particular and publishing in, in certain venues. And um, certainly some types of work are not as valued as others. Um, at least in a workload calculator, you can see that and contest that. Whereas I think every job has some sort of a workload calculator because that's really what a performance review is. It's just, again, 
hidden. It's not as um, transparent as, and so I think there's an effort with the with the with the work happening in Australia to make it clear what expectations look like and what work looks like. But it's 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 not an exact science, and there's a lot of concerns and worries about that. But on the flip side, by not, it's kind of like what what if what does someone need to get tenure, and no one's really comfortable in an institution saying exactly what that is for fear of a lawsuit or for fear of if we spell it out. Um, he'll come back and say, you've done all those things, but we still don't feel that you belong here. So, um, so there's trade-offs with workload calculators, but it's something that, that occurs much more in other parts of the world than the United States. Now you talk about the impostural syndrome. Mm-hmm. What does this mean? Yeah. So imposter syndrome, a lot of times in the coaching world, we call it the inner critic. And it's that sense. And I was just talking, I was just having lunch with um, one of my students today. And she said, you know, um, she's a grad student. um, And she said, you know, there are times when I can really do this. And I think that that everything's going okay, being a student. And there are times when I just wonder if I'm if I can even succeed at all. And I doubt myself and I question it. And I said, yeah, that's when your inner critic is, is creeping in because I know you and I know that you can do the work. Um, and so I said, what you really need to ask yourself when that doubt is creeping in is, do I enjoy reading and writing and researching and, and all the things involved in teaching that wouldn't be in, in an academic career? Do I, does it charge my batteries instead of drain them to do this kind of work? And if it does, then we can help you with whatever tools you need to be successful. If, if, if those core responsibilities of the academic world are a struggle for you or, or they're not, they're kind of depleting your energy, then it may not be your inner critic. It might be your soul saying to you, you know what, maybe this isn't your path. And that's okay if it's not your path. We all have a sense of where we need to be. And sometimes we end up in the wrong place. But the where the imposter syndrome comes or the inner critic is when, and it usually is from our chin up. <laughs> it's, it's, it's that voice in our head that says we should, look for the word, should be behaving differently. We should be better. It's that sense of perfectionism, of comparing, the constant comparison of ourselves to our colleagues, to everyone else, and not feeling like we measure up. It's that those voices that get trapped in our heads that say we're not good enough, we're not enough. I think with academics, um, that really creeps in with the with the peer review process of getting uh, putting out our work out and ha- getting feedback, whether that's on grants or on publications. I think it also creeps up at conferences, even though that's a time for real collaboration and a place to encourage us to stretch our minds. It's also the time that you know, faculty tend to work in isolation a lot in terms of our um, our content area. And so it's when we meet colleagues from other parts of the world, and that can be really invigorating and inspiring and exciting. And it also can lead to comparison of, of you know, oh my gosh, well, look at what everyone else and what my all my other colleagues have accomplished this year. And what have I done? You know, what, what's wrong with me? So we all have this in all parts of our life. And those inner critics are maybe different for how we parent or how we, how, um, we show up for our, our, our partners or our parents. Um, they also, it also shows up in our work life. And so when, what the, the biggest concern is when that, that 
criticism really blocks us and stops us in our tracks and, and prevents us from being productive and um, creates kind of negative thought patterns that we're not able to push through. Um, so it's really uh, a process of noticing when those negative thoughts arise, realizing that they're not um, truth. And a lot of ways to do that is, you know, feeling in our body where they're coming from, trying to figure out, you know, where, where did this thought, how did this thought get stuck in my head? Where did I originally hear this? Is it even true? Um, where, you know, and, and really pushing back against it with an alternative mindset around success and around what we know is true about our work. So, you know, whether it be saving positive perspectives on ourselves or, or getting, having a mentor or a coach helping to remind us of why we do the work we do and the ways in which we know that it's important and valued. Now you had some um, exercises that you suggest for Mm -hmm. people to do with this inner critic. Tell us about that. Yeah, there's, there's, a real sense that, and really it comes down to we're retraining the neural pathways in our brain to um, not go towards negative or ruminated, rumination or, or, or stuck thoughts, but to, to um, it, it's almost like a, a gratitude practice of reminding ourselves of what is, what is good and healthy in the world. And so while we can have inner critics in our head, we can also have inner champions. So instead of holding tight to the parts and times in our lives when we've struggled or failed, we can hold tight to the parts of our lives where we've been successful. We can look back to moments throughout our lives where we had particular feelings of success and put images of those moments um, up to remind us. We can have people who inspire us. Maybe it's our grandmother who wasn't able to go to college, for example, or, um, or a colleague who you know believes in you. Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's um, it's it's an image that that helps you to think and be brave, such as a big oak tree or a lion, you know. And all these things, while they seem a little bit, um, they may seem a little far fetched. What what we're trying to do with these images and these memories is to turn our brain towards places of strength. Um, and you know, even as I'm giving these positive images, I can feel my own back standing a little straighter. I find myself sitting a little taller. I can feel my heart expanding a little more because I've been doing a lot of practice with these kind of things. Um, Amy Cuddy, who is a um, is is a psychologist and a business professor from Harvard, um, she she even believes in kind of the notion of power poses, of the sense that how we put our body helps us to train us into how we think about ourselves. So if we're struggling or we're having a difficult moment, it's really, um, you know, even excuse yourself to the bathroom and put yourself in like what you think of like as a yoga pose or a mountain pose or your hands up in the sky and your chest really broadly and take a few breaths to remember how to take up space and to feel strong and rooted and powerful again. So those are some embodiment exercises around like really helping our body to help us to remember. Um, then the imagery that I success, um, suggested. So there's a, you know, and, there, and, and coaches and therapists and things can help if there's deeper traumas or reasons why we're really doubting ourselves. But um, I, I said, it's like a gratitude practice. That's a common thing that we do in coaching of every night 
trying to list five great things that happened during the day. And when I first was assigned to do that by my coach, I just didn't get the point of it. And she was like, well, why don't you, why is this not working for you? And I'm like, well, of course I write down, I'm grateful for my family and my job and that I have a home. And she's like, no, 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 no. You need to write down what actually you were grateful for today. And that might be the door closing when your children got on the school bus because you finally have a moment of peace and quiet. Like be truly honest about what in that moment was helpful. And and so in a gratitude practice, it's the details and it's the moment. It's not, I'm grateful for my children, but I'm grateful that I had three minutes in the car where I made eye contact with my 17-year-old son who was very salty today and I made him laugh even though he was grumpy. So see the difference between that and I'm grateful for my son. It's that it's almost by giving the details of a particular moment in your life that then, first of all, your brain kind of is able to tap back into the feelings you had in that moment and you get to feel it all again. But you're also reminding your neural pathways to go towards those positive moments. And the more you remember little details around it, the lighting, the sound, what have you, the more your body gets to experience it again and turn your face towards the positive. So in these visualization or in these embodiment exercises with the inner critic, similarly, the more we remind ourselves of what it feels to be strong and confident in the positive, the easier it is to wire our brain towards those feelings, even when negative things come our way. Time management. Now, how important is this for faculty success? It's extremely important because one of the gifts of being a faculty member is that it is a job that has an enormous amount of freedom. You are measured not by the amount of hours that you're present doing anything, but by the quality of what you do. So the time you spend is almost more valuable because you, you know, you just need to get it done <laughs> and you need to do it well. And you don't, you can do it really quickly if you're very efficient and, and what have you. So, um, so but because it's because it's so independent and um you know it's it's you can you can do the work whenever or wherever you have to have enormous self control you have to have great sense of your own boundaries cuz no one's creating those for you like they might in a job where you show up and for a certain amount of hours and you're given a certain number of tasks and that, so that can be a blessing or a curse, depending on your personality and depending on what else is going on in your life. So you really have to be in control of your calendar and you have to be very thoughtful. Ideally, if you're going to work less hours and be more successful about what, what times of day, what times of the week, what times of the year you can be more productive. I am not a morning person. I would love to be a morning person. It sounds like a great thing to be able to knock your work out in the beginning of the day. But I produce no writing of significance before 11 a.m. So to get up at 8 a.m. and say, I'm going to work a traditional work week means that really meaningful work isn't getting done till 11. So I exercise. I get my house clean. I get my dogs walked so that my work day begins when I know I can be effective. And so the extent that we can honor that, and we have lives where we can work when we know that we're most productive, that's the ideal situation. 
Now, that being said, my most productive hours were between two and about six in the afternoon. And that with as a as a mom who had small children for most of my career, those aren't the hours of the day when you can really get a lot of work done. Those are the hours when the kids are on their way home from school and otherwise. But what I realized was that when I had times of high stress or high expectation or right before I was going up for tenure, I needed to honor that I needed to pay for childcare and extra care during those hours so that I could make the most of those so I could be more productive. So really honoring those rhythms. Similarly, I think for faculty, the last month of a semester is not a time that you're going to get any additional projects done. So why think that you're going to get an article written in December or in April? Whereas May, for me at least, and for a lot of faculty, that month right after the semester ends in the summer tends to be a very productive writing time for a lot of faculty. So really noticing those rhythms of the calendar and what that might look like. Um, you know, and you may have other rhythms in your own life, whether it be related to family members, related to your own medical health, that there are certain days of the week, days of the month, what have you, certain medications that you take, that um, you're more able to be focused in times when you're not feeling as well. So um, if you have a job that gives you the freedom to create your schedule, the more you can honor those, the more you can kind of ride the waves of knowing that there are, in all of our lives, we have times of productivity and times where we're not as, as productive. Now, you talked about visualization. How important mm -hmm. is this? Visualization is a lot like what I was talking about with the inner champions and the gratitude practice of um, our brain doesn't necessarily know whether something's actually happening versus what we're imagining in our mind to happen. So if if we visualize that something is occurring, whether it be um, the job that we want or how we want to move forward, um, I'm a big fan of even vision boards of visual of putting something, um, you know, on a bulletin board that you get to see every day. It helps our mind and our neural pathways again to believe that it's actually possible. And so our unconscious mind, as well as our conscious mind, looks for that as truth and as reality. What we believe and say to ourselves is what we become. And so um, the more we say negative thoughts about ourselves, the more we believe them, the more our brain makes that true. The more we visualize and, and set expectations and what I would call intention around how we want to show up in the world, not just what we want to do, but how we want to be. And, and the goals that we have for our lives, in our work life, in our relationships, otherwise, the more we're training our brain to look for those moments of what we're hoping for. So um, it's not just, um, you know, like, just, you know, like wishing on a birthday candle, the more we focus on what that could be. And, and this is something that's really come through with exercise psychology and um, any professional athlete, you can see it right in the Olympics, you know, um, you can see them even though like, the minutes before they're going to do a routine, if it's the ice skaters or the gymnasts or the those aerial skiers that in their head, they're running through their routine. They're visualizing the perfect routine. They're teaching their brain and their body in their own mind exactly how it's going to go. And we can do that in anything that we do in our lives, not just in athletics. And it's been shown 
um, in the neuroscience research to have enormous benefits in terms of helping us to achieve what we're hoping for in, in our lives. Now, building connection with others is important in this work. How has the pandemic stopped or increased this? I think this is one of the most critical issues in all workplaces is uh, I think, you know, I'd hope, um, you know, we're, we're talking in March 2022 right now. A lot of the masking rules have um, finally been lifted just in this past couple of weeks. And so um, we may be coming out of it. We keep thinking we're coming out of it and then we're not. But, you know, for, for the academic world, um, you, most students in a university setting, whether it be undergrad or grad school, are not there for longer than two to four years, right? So um, our students have have really most have, have lost that institutional memory of ability to carry forward traditions and culture because it hasn't been there. So as faculty, as staff, um, we'll, we'll, we have a responsibility to to bring back traditions of connection and belonging that were useful in the past, but also to to think through how do we want to go forward in ways that build connection. It's through knowing one another that trust exists, that we are able to understand who we are as people beyond a title or position. And that's where we can build empathy, where we can care for one another. And research is showing that some of the major reasons people are leaving jobs at this time and and what they're defining as a toxic environment is one in which they don't know one another, that there aren't opportunities for social time for for sharing some food or a cup of coffee um, and and that those informal moments are critical to um, psychological health to job satisfaction and so all these different pieces of belonging has is is a big part of trying to think through how we can help people to want to stay in the workplace in Sweden they have a, a, a tradition, called Fika, F-I-K-A, which is basically an afternoon coffee break. Um, and I was astonished to visit a colleague at a university in Sweden where there are elaborate kitchens, um, you know, right in, in each office where people stop their day to sit and not to bring their work or not to grab the cup of coffee and scuttle back to their offices, but to spend 10 minutes in fellowship with one another when I was in fellowship in India, there is chai tea served at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. And again, you go down to the courtyard and you have a cup of tea and you look people in the face and you you talk and, you know, you 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 connect. And we've lost so much of that. And it, we were never a culture that was very good at that to begin with. And that is going to be our challenge in all workplaces going forward is how to bring that belonging back and use it as an opportunity to create new and important um, uh, rituals and processes so we can know one another again in the bigger sense. Another aspect of the academic work is searching for a book contract. You gave Mm -hmm. several suggestions. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah, I stumbled into realizing that, so book contracts, unlike articles, you can pursue multiple places at once. And what I learned in the academic world is that conferences and in place in large conferences where there's um, a publication area um, are a really, really critical place that you can um, 
you can kind of catch a whole bunch of publishers who are there for the purpose of connecting with authors. So I try to time my book proposals around the big conference I have each year where I know that, that I can set up appointments with multiple publishers at a time. They're there, they're present, and they're looking for conversations with authors. And having those initial conversations allowed me to understand the differences between what different presses are looking like and what they want out of a proposal. And again, build that face-to-face relationship with editors who then might champion you going forward. So I would say in your field, figuring out where are the meetings, where are the conventions, where there is that, um, that, that area where you have all the different publishers selling books and, um, and, and, and finding out if editors are available for meetings. That's been far more successful for me than trying to get people on the phone or on email or otherwise at other times of the year. Now, a person becomes a mid-career professional. There are issues with career satisfaction. What are you suggesting for that mid-career person? I think what I found in the mid-career world, and I can speak for myself, is that um, much like any, any mid-career crisis, we hit a moment at, at, in our careers where we've checked all the boxes and we've searched for the gold stars and we've hit a level where we're not necessarily wanting even to move up the ladder any forward. If, if I were to go from a professor right now, any other promotion, quote unquote promotion, mostly would involve moving to administration, which isn't something I'm necessarily wanting to do. So it left me with this sense of, my goodness, I still have almost 20 years of my professional career. I'm turning 50 this year. What do I want to do with it? Um, and and not really having a clear path as we do in the first half of our lives around what a career looks like in the second phase. <laughs> and so there are a lot of ways you can do that. Some people change jobs entirely. Some people um, rethink what they're doing or their relationship with their work. Some people change the topics that they're researching. Partly what I did was I went and I got trained as a coach and I developed a, a, a second um part of my work as a, as a, as a private consulting and coaching practice. So sometimes we call those side hustles, that there are other parts of the talents that we have that may not fit with, um, with our paid job. And if we have, you know, work that allows us to have um, a second line of work, that sometimes that's an easier way to try on a set of skills that isn't necessarily a direct fit with your, with your primary job. Um, sometimes those side hustles end up turning into your 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 primary jobs and you shift. And sometimes they're just a creative outlet, whether you're an artist or, you know, it doesn't even necessarily need to be a paid side thing, but sometimes it is, or, you know, sometimes it's it's writing the novel you always said you were going to do. But it's it's finding ways. I think we can't do it all by the sense of like in any one moment in our lives, we probably, you know, we can't hit all the things that we wish we could do in our lives. But if we look in our lives in a much wider angle, that there are moments and phases of our time when we can do all the things that we're hoping to do throughout our lifetime. And I think um, in the la- in the second half of our careers, it's a moment to say, what have I not done that I really want to take the time? And again, with that intention, being intentional about 
finding fulfillment by actually being brave enough to to try that out. As colleges and universities undergo change, should they focus on providing more teaching and learning resources for faculty? And what type? I really feel that much that we need to learn from the corporate world and bring coaching into a way to personalize learning for individuals who are struggling, individuals who are going through transitions, individuals who are stepping into leadership positions. We give startup packages to faculty, but we don't say that those could be used to hire a coach, which is something that's incredibly common in the, in the corporate world. So I think more individual and personalized focus, but also we need to think through that we need, if we're really committed to diversity and equity and inclusion, then it's not just about hiring, but it's about retention. And even more so, it's, it's, it's far more affordable to keep and to, to help to, to support faculty to be successful that we have than to continuing to go out and recruit and, and, and bring in new folks over and over again. So what do, can we create spaces not just for individual support through coaching, but also by helping to connect um, minoritized faculty to one another, to support one another? Can we provide resources and encouragement to build community among folks who are present and to be able to mentor one another, um, as well as individualized support? Now, what is the overall message you hope to leave the reader with? I think the overall message is that we need to be entrepreneurs and, and, and detectives of our own experiences in terms of understanding those unspoken messages of the, of the, of the faculty and of the university, university. And it's only through helping and maybe and particularly working collaboratively with other colleagues on this process that we can understand what's expected and be able to push back and question spaces where we feel that there are inequities. So on the one side, we really need to engage with what it is that the university is saying and, and not saying, but expecting of us as faculty. On the other side, we need to be more intentional about investigating our own selves of that idea of intention and purpose and taking the time to ask those hard questions of our own hearts and look below our chins um, from our heads down to our hearts and our, our guts to what is it that we feel is the contribution and purpose that we can bring and how can we bring that forward in the work that we have to do? How do we find that way to make a difference in terms of what we feel our purpose is through having a greater sense that we can control our working environment through the ABCs of agency, belonging and finding like fellow travelers to do this work with us? and competencies, figuring out what are the skills that I have that are great and the ones that I don't, how can I get coaching or other support in order to, to, to make them stronger? Well, we've taken up enough of your time. What is the next project you'll be working on? You know, I increasingly am, am, am giving talks about this work to um, undergrads um, and finding that undergrads are really, really struggling in this pandemic with mental health and well-being and finding that um, there are so many unspoken rules about about college that they're not learning right now. Um, and I don't know if a book is really the best way to reach undergrads right now or some sort of multimedia um, process, but I would like to extend this work and kind of, you know, I've been studying 
um, students for so long in my research, and it's mainly been K-12 students, and now I'm studying faculty, and I think I would like to bridge the gap and and connect with um, with young people ages 18 to 25 about how this, this work can help them as they move forward in their world, too. Well, that sounds great. We'll be looking forward to that. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me.